Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 212. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to discuss National Treasure Book of Secrets. This is the second film in the National Treasure franchise. Last week, we reviewed the first film. We basically gave it perfect marks. And we've always really liked the film. Admittedly, though, when I saw the trailers for this sequel, I remember thinking, these trailers don't look that great. And then when I heard what the premise of the film was, I thought, even by National Treasure like standards, this seems really far-fetched. Now, I know that this was a big deal for your family when it came out. Did you rush to see this one in the movie theaters? We did. We sure did. I, I get the feeling that a lot of people did. I mean, it was a big box office success, right? And and obviously from there, we've been waiting and waiting for a third film. And of course, we are getting the television series on Disney Plus that's dropping later this week at the time of this recording. And that's why we're doing all of these recaps and why we're going into length discussing the National Treasure franchise. Um, I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get right into it because... I will spoil it by saying that we talked last week about how the film, the first film, kind of reads easy on paper, but it seems more convoluted in film. It's kind of flipped the other way this week, and I just want to get right into it. So did we need a sequel? Did we enjoy the sequel? Should we still be getting a television series based on this film? and whether or not we enjoyed it. That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date on all of the new releases. Five days after the end of the Civil War, John Wilkes Booth and Michael O'Loughlin ask Thomas Gates to decode a Playfair cipher in Booth's diary, as Thomas sees that they belong to the KGC, Booth assassinates uh, President Lincoln. Gates realizes he has decoded a clue to a treasure map, but refuses to help the Knights of the Gold Circle. So as he starts to burn the diary page, O'Loughlin shoots and kills Gates before pulling the page out of the fire. Oh, what a start. They they jump right into it. Starts on another flashback, much like the original film. You know, it's it's focused around the Gates family again, much like the first film. Uh, but what a start with the assassin assassination of Lincoln. Well, that's exactly it. I don't think this is like the first film at all. I mean, yes, it is in terms of being a flashback, but I didn't think that they would do a recreation of an event like this. And certainly not show it in such depth. Yeah, they do. You know, the first flashback, like, yes, they do show moments of the Revolutionary War. And they show a couple of cannons going off. But it's not really gory. And you see the Gates family dancing around the actual event. Right. Here, it's a full-blown recreation. Because I knew immediately when I saw this, even though... 
they start in a tavern and, you know, it wasn't Booth walking up to the theater. I I kind of thought to myself, like, is this supposed to be Booth? And then, yes, they show him going to the stage door. It obviously confirms it. Um, but I'm just still really surprised that they went there. They go for it. I give them a lot of credit for going for it. It's an extraordinarily strong open. And it's a very good lead-in to uh, Benjamin and Patrick giving this presentation. Right, because now in present day, as Ben gives a presentation of the events of that night, Mitch Wilkinson interrupts with the missing diary page that was pulled out of the fireplace and claims that Thomas Gates, in fact, masterminded the assassination of Lincoln. It is a total turn of events. But I have to be honest with you, simply because Gates' name shows up on the page of the diary, I'm not exactly sure why everybody was so quick to jump to the conclusion that Gates masterminded it based on the fact that his name is on the page and Mitch is just telling us that this is what happened. Right, and I get why they're doing it. Obviously, it's setting up the plot of the sequel, But it doesn't exactly jive with the first film because a lot of Ben's arc in the first one was that he's trying to clear his family name because the Gateses were always the butt of the joke in the historical community because they're saying treasure map, treasure map, and nobody believed them. So it is a little bit of a stretch here, I think, that somebody shows up as a naysayer and the first thing that they're doing is to doubt Gates again after everything that he proved wrong in the first one. Though I will say this is not the most egregious thing that we have ever seen a sequel do as far as not being a continuous flow from the original, especially in films that we have reviewed as of late. Right. So Ed Harris is introduced as Mitch Wilkinson. And Ed Harris is great. Like, Ed Harris is one of those actors that's good in everything. So, like, there's nothing that he necessarily does wrong here. It just seems like 140 years of history. Here he is. He's the shadow creature that's lurking in the back of the auditorium that goes, I have a page with a name. (laughs) And they go, my God, he's correct. Throw away American history. Run with the headline. Exactly. But I will say this is such a strong introduction to our villain because it's very subtle, but you hear in his first couple of lines that Southern drawl. And it sets up the idea of the North versus the South and being on opposite sides of it. And it's such a great way to pit these two characters against each other because they're both fighting to clear their family's name. So, And I also think it was a smart way to introduce this idea too because it's not like Ian who was Ben's partner in the first one and he double crosses him for his own gain. This is a worthy adversary because he's fighting for the exact same cause. Correct. In an attempt to prove Thomas's innocence, Ben gets Riley to help him break into his former home that he shared with Abigail, who has since kicked him out. She catches them as she returns home from a date, and Ben tells her that they need to use spectral imaging on the diary page. Uh, when they do, they find a cipher that they need to decode to prove Thomas's innocence by finding the missing treasure. The clue leads Riley and Ben to Paris, where at a miniature version of the Statue of Liberty, they find another clue that will eventually lead them to London. Here's the thing 
and it starts happening early on. This is my biggest problem with this film. I'm just going to get this out of the way early. They are squeezing too much, too soon, too big into a very small amount of screen time. I mentioned last week that what the first film does really well is how well paced it is. It's just enough clues where it's not boring. They give you just enough where it's not convoluted. And they do it just slow enough that you can follow it without it being boring. But this is a very typical sequel, right? Where it's like, we have to up everything. So we're going to do more technology. We're going to fly all over the world. We're going to do it really quick. And it, it just seems like an awful lot that's happening in a very small window from the minute Abigail uses that spectral imaging. See, I think it was a smart idea to take it international, but I do agree with you. The whole slow burn leading up to I have to steal the Declaration of Independence was just really well done. Uh, it was really well thought out and, as you said, very well paced because you have the big scene on the Charlotte Ian double crosses him and then he decides that's when he makes that conclusion. Right. Ian's going to go after it. So I have to do it to protect it. But it's the one scene and one clue here. I think they are building to the big moment of I have to kidnap the president, but they are jamming far too many scenes and too many clues beforehand because that is your big moment. And it's it is this film's declaration of independence. But. I think it may have served them well to do it. Well, no, I maybe it wouldn't have served them well to do it earlier because then it's going to feel like a complete retread. What I really don't like here is what they're doing with our characters. Uh, you have Patrick regressing to doubt, and it that honestly is getting old because as soon as as Mitch shows up. Um, you know, they get back home and Patrick is kind of throwing his hands in the air and right. he's like, oh, we did all of this for nothing. Not for nothing. You made a huge discovery. Like how how do you immediately just drop back into this is never going to work? Yeah. Keys to nothing and this and that. What was the point? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't like that at all. And what's even worse for me is the way that they are treating this breakup between Ben and Abigail like it's a divorce and dividing up the furniture. And I don't buy for a second that Abigail gets the house. When it was yes. Ben's discovery, he got credit for all of it. And all he wanted was her name cleared. She has gone back to quote unquote civilian life after this adventure. She's still got her job. Right. Her her government job protecting documents. Um, so I, I just don't believe that she got the house and I think this could have been far more effective if maybe she was like let's settle down let's get married let's start a family yes and resisting another adventure after having her name cleared in the first one because she didn't really want to get roped up in this whole thing and maybe it's just I want to return to normalcy this was fun and instead I feel like they did a complete disservice to the character by having her play the pissed off girlfriend. Yes, because now they're just bickering with each other for the sake of now it seems like a catty divorce. Exactly. It's a trope, right? Like you've seen it a hundred times over. And I feel like these characters, this screenwriting is better than that. 
I 100% agree with you. The relationship with Riley, though, is better than ever. It's still, you know, they just fall right back into it. He's written his book. Ben is still treating him like an assistant, despite everything that Riley did to help him in the first one. Um, And I love this quick little scene in France where Riley's got the drone. They're trying to read the uh, inscription on the Statue of Liberty. And these two French cops are hysterical to me. It sort of feels like that scene where uh, they're going to buy new clothes once they get to Philadelphia. And, you know, Nicolas Cage is or Ben is explaining everything. And he thinks that the clerk cares, but she really doesn't. Except now, you know, he's played on this idea of a stupid American in France. He wins these cops over. Now they're completely invested, but they still give Riley a ticket. I think this is just such a great little scene to breathe. It's very funny. And it's really well done, even though, as you said, there's a lot going on. But I think it was strategic to let it breathe a little bit. So even though they're cramming a lot in, you're still balancing the pace out nicely. Yeah, in that case, they did. As Ben and Riley are overseas, Wilkinson and his men attack Patrick and clone his cell phone for tracking purposes. No one, knowing that someone else is hunting the treasure, the two work quickly to get to Buckingham Palace to inspect one of the twin resolute desks that they believe will lead them to the treasure. This was the clue that they got off of the Statue of Liberty, or one of the three Statue of Liberties that exist in the world. How you say resolute? Yeah. Abigail arrives, and Ben creates a scene that gets them locked in a cell at Buckingham Palace. Riley remotely opens the cell, and Ben and Abigail use a dumbwaiter to get to the Queen's study to inspect the desk. There they find a pre-Columbian wood plank with carvings that act as their next clue. So again, like, like, jam it in, jam it in, jam it in, jam it in. Um, something that's very different about this versus the first film they're doing a lot more with tech in this film a lot more hacking a lot more macgyvering things together a lot more man in the chair with riley yeah which i'm not i don't know that i love it as much because i I, it's not as practical i can buy that riley can do some of these things but it kind of seems like over the course of two or three years now he can do an awful lot more you could say, well, technology advances and so does the person, and that's partially true. My bigger issue with it is we don't know anything about Wilkinson other than he's bald and he's got a southern drawl and he's got very dark eyes and he wears black clothes, so villain. We don't know anything about it. Like, when I looked up the plot, they said, oh, he's from the black market. But but what is he selling? They don't even know what he's selling. He's just listed as someone from the black market. So you have this villain who is intriguing and the actor is excellent. He's got all of this money to do all of this cloning and all of this hacking, but we don't know what he does. We don't know where he gets his money from. It's like we're just supposed to like accept that, well, bad guy, you get it. I think that's... That's a big disconnect, and it and it happens here. You're right, but I'm really glad that you brought this up now with Riley and all of the tech because that was something that I wanted to address early on because I think it's going to play a big role in the rest of the film. And it also has a lot to do with the pacing that we've been talking about. Um, 
the biggest difference between the first and second one is that you lose that heist element. Yep. Yes, they are still breaking in. Yes, there is still that element of snatch and grab, but there's no big heist that they're pulling off, like with the Declaration of Independence. Like, yes, they are going to eventually leave with a piece of wood from the Queen's desk, but there's still not as much at stake. So it's really just, it it feels more spy movie almost than heist movie. I'm glad that you bring that up. And I note on that later. Yeah, I think that that's also where, or why you feel the way you do about the villain. But as even though you are losing that heist element, I still feel like this is a really strong scene because you have your three main characters, even though Abigail and Ben are at odds, they just fall right back into it. I feel like Abigail showing up at Buckingham Palace was a bit contrived, even though they try to cover it with, oh, your dad called me and said you were here thinking I could help because we already know that his phone is hacked, but Mitch knows from the call to Ben where the location is. Yeah. So you didn't need that as a throwaway line. It was just kind of like, well, we, we need the trifecta back together. We have to get Abigail here. And that's where I would have believed it more if they weren't fully broken up, if this was just a fight where they weren't exactly on speaking terms. And she kind of realized herself, well, he's going to do this no matter what. And even though I'm not speaking to him, and even though I want us to settle down, I need to be there to protect him and make sure make sure that nothing goes wrong because she was such an integral part of them getting away with everything in the first one. They can't do it without each other. And I like that, that this scene establishes that because Riley's got his role, she's got hers, and Ben has his, and they are a unit. You need the meeting of the minds. Um, as contrived as it is, there is a big payoff because they finally let cage go full cage oh, in this scene so cagey <laughs> uh it's hilarious it gets me every time i actually forgot about this so i was like i haven't seen this movie in a couple of years and i was rolling at this part because i forgot when he starts you know this fake british accent and i went to the pub to get some whiskey and uh and haggis when he screams haggis it's it is it's the most cage we get in the entire franchise, up to this point at least, I'm glad they let him go off. But it, like in this instance, it makes sense that this is where they let him go off. Yes, exactly, because they needed a diversion. And even at first, Riley is like, oh no, Abigail's there. And then when he hears them start to argue, he was like, okay, lean into this. Yeah. He gets a great line too. Uh, because to get them out of Buckingham Palace, he sets off the fire alarm and he goes, God save the queen. And that's where Justin Bartha is just so perfect because I think any other actor would have delivered this line so heavy and and like screamed out, God save the queen. And he's just so subtle in his delivery. It's perfection. I love the puzzle box desk. I love how they realized that the creator of the desk was a puzzle maker and that's how they figured yes. it out. Like this is where... It works really well where they do have to use their smarts and they do have to uncover and, and you know, stay a step ahead of everybody else and use their knowledge of history and just their common sense and their quick wit to figure out these clues. This is where, it, honestly, like, 
this is this is where it feels the most like national treasure. A lot that happens after this, just in my opinion, gets so outrageous that you completely lose the charm that is national treasure. Yes, and that's exactly what I'm talking about where you need the three of them because up to this point, we see Ben and Abigail sneaking in to the Queen's room and we hear Riley, but it's the cutting back to him where as soon as they say, oh, there's a name here, and then he just Googles it. It's almost like a jarring edit because you don't exactly forget he's there because you hear him, but it it just flows because you know you need him for this part. Right. It's just really well-paced. Wilkinson tracks them down in London and eventually gets the plank, but not before Ben takes a photo of the plank on a traffic camera so that he can... Decode it himself. Um, okay, Here, here's my thing. When Ben sees Wilkinson, what we know up to this point is he's like, somebody else is after the treasure. Well, who else would it yeah. be? And when he sees Wilkinson, like the look of shock on his face, you have not had another adversary in this film. It made sense that he knew that Ian was going after it in the first film because Ian double-crossed him. There's nobody else that could possibly be doing this at the exact same time that you are doing this. Especially when Wilkinson has literally showed all of his cards. Yes! <laughs> yeah, it, That that's the only thing that I was bumping on a little bit. And then we get your favorite thing ever, guns in a metropolitan area. Where are the authorities? This is my thing. Watching this... I immediately thought about Casino Royale, which came out around the same time. It was a massive success. Yes. The Italian job had come out a couple of years yeah. prior to that. Again, Michael Bay films, right? The car chases, Transformers, exactly what I was right? Of. Like, this just is, this is where it's no longer national treasure. It's just how I feel about this. From this point on, the film goes so off the rails in the other direction that it doesn't feel like national treasure anymore. It doesn't make sense that it didn't make sense in the first one that Ian was as reckless as he was, but whatever, you kind of just take it for what it is. But in this case, they are not doing anything to hide their identity. You know, like, and Ian doesn't do it in the first one either, but I almost feel like it's even worse off here because at least Ian's guys were using silencers on their guns. They were trying to hide something. This, we're hijacking cars and we're crashing them into crowded buildings and crowded streets and we're flipping them over. It, it's just, it, it's too much. Well, it's a sequel. They needed to up the ante. No, they didn't. Um, I get it, though, because there was a beat where I did think the exact same thing. And I was kind of like, we're in London, tight streets, wrong side of the road. There has to be a car chase. And I almost rolled my eyes. But I disagree because there was a car chase in the first one when they take Abigail and they're, you know, ripping and roaring through D.C. And they pass her from Ian's car into the van where they are. So I was kind of like, all right, being that there has been a car chase before, I don't feel like they are just completely trying to abuse the setting. But I do agree. There were a million other comp films just like this with car chases. And to a point where I was actually watching this and I was like, huh, I'm surprised they didn't incorporate this into Lights, Motors, Action, because that was also such a huge thing. Yep. Especially that it was supposed to take place in that little European town. 
instead of putting Lightning McQueen in there, uh, why didn't exactly, you do more with this? That is exactly what I have written here. Right? Yep. Yeah. Um, and the cha- the traffic cam, it it's fun. It's a good idea. But they almost call attention to it when he does it without thinking, and he just looks at Riley, and he's like, hack the camera. And Riley's like, I love that you just assume that I can. I mean, I can, but I love that you just assume it, and then they throw the plank out the window. Um, couple of things with that. I do appreciate that they have alluded to smartphones, but they're not completely relying on them. Like he asks Abigail, does that phone have a camera in it? And she's like, yeah, but it's broken. So they do have to get creative. They didn't just rely on, well, we have this new technology, so we're going to write it right in. Um, I thought that that was clever. I don't hate the back and forth with Riley because that's exactly Abigail's point but at the same time the three of you have built an entire relationship and and what you do based around the fact that you can just communicate with very little words because you know the other person's going to be there so I feel like that is something that they should appreciate about each other and not harp on so much that Ben just assumes they're going to do it he he needs them to do it The other thing that I do really appreciate about this scene, though, during the car chase is that there are not a lot of wides. It is shot very tightly. So, again, you have the three of them doing most of their own stunts. Yeah. Back in the U.S. with Patrick's help, they learn that they are chasing the ancient city of gold, but they need the help of Ben's mother, Emily, to translate the ancient Native American language on the plank. Because apparently she's a historian and this is what she does. She translates the plank but tells them that they only have half of the clue. So they head to the other Resolute desk, which happens to be in Washington, D.C., at the White House, in the Oval Office. Um, we get Helen Mirren, which, I mean, what do I need to say? She's a legend. She's incredible. Uh, I love that they tapped her for this film. Yeah. Um, I totally buy the relationship with Patrick that they leaned into the treasure, the treasure maps in the family history cost him the love of his life. Um, so I totally buy that they can't even stand to be in the same room together. However, we are completely forgetting, you know, that little treasure that they found at the end of the first film. I know. How is it that they're still estranged that there's still this bitterness that there's all of the bickering when it was all true. Wouldn't she have owed him an apology? And instead you do get a throwaway line of it was all Ben. You had nothing to do with that. He absolutely did. So I didn't need all of that to play out in some big moment where, where she's groveling to Patrick about it, but I just don't, by that she would that that she wouldn't have softened her stance a little bit. The scene is funny, but it's not because it's well written. It's because John Voight and Helen Mirren do really good uh, work. So good. That's what it is. But you're right. It's we're just going to throw the entire first film to the wind at this point. At the White House Easter egg roll, Abigail uses Connor, the man she is currently seeing, who is also the White House curator, to get them into the Oval Office. And as Abigail distracts Connor by basically any means necessary, Ben opens the desk to find that the other plank is missing. Ben finds the symbol of the president's secret book in the drawer, so knowing that they need the book, Ben goes to ancient 
uh, Agent Sadusky, who confirms the existence of the book. However, the president is the only person who knows the whereabouts of the book. So Ben decides, naturally, like you do, that he has to kidnap the president to learn where the book is being kept. Let's just put a pin in the moment where this film jumps the shark. And let's go back to the Oval Office. Yes. Um, What I like is that we've seen, we haven't seen a whole date with Abigail and... um, And Connor. And Connor. Played by Ty Burrell, by the way. Yes. Who is perfection in this role. Um, They they go, he's bringing her back home when the night that Ben is breaking into the house. So I I like that they covered their tracks and they didn't just intro him at this point. I think that would have been utterly ridiculous. Um, But... To play off of the idea that he's so obsessed with Abigail that he'll do anything for her. And then, you know, he turns into this sort of bumbling fool when they're in the office. Um, it it just works so well. Um, I feel like the scene could have been a lot more comedic, though, had it been more of like a noises off type of thing with more people walking in and out of the room and... Um, just another added element of like, oh my God, anybody could be in here at any moment. Or if Connor had left them in there for some reason and and he, there was a threat of him coming back. Um, they they did it better, really, in the Queen's office. They did. I mean, the, the scene is very funny. And I can buy the fact that, let's just call it what it is, Abigail's wearing a low-cut dress and she's bending over in front of him and that's what's got him distracted and when that doesn't work she just starts making out with him like it's funny and I can like here's the thing I can see Abigail actually doing all of these things because she wants to hunt the treasure down now as badly as the rest of them do so it doesn't seem like it's out of character per se but you're right for something that is usually or at least was in the first film and I'm not saying this again because I'm tired of saying it, it was so smart and so calculated and kept you on the edge of your seat. Mm. Girl wears low-cut shirt, bends over, kisses boy, just kind of seems lazy. It feels very cheap for this film. Yeah, it's like it's the cheap and easy way out of it. That's exactly what it is. Funny as it is, and as much as I think it makes sense for all of the characters, it just seems cheap. I think what also makes it funny is Ty Burrell. I feel like anyone yes. else, this scene would have collapsed. Yeah, I think the only other person that maybe could have pulled this scene off, although I don't think he was quite famous enough at the time, the only other actor I think you could put in that role would be maybe John Mulaney. And he could do it just as well, but... But that's, that's not really what we're arguing here. The scene works because of Ty Burrell. You're completely correct about that. I actually think Mulaney is a little bit too young, and it would have felt like boy with a crush. But would that have worked? I think it's funnier because you have a, a an older man who's acting like a boy with a crush. Understood. Um, and I love Sadusky. I love that Harvey Keitel is back. Yes. We mentioned him earlier, but I love this. Let's go look at the Ducks. And I'm going to tell you that this book exists. But as I, a friend. As a friend, I can't do it in my office because now I'm on the clock and people are listening. Well, because they did establish that relationship with Sadusky in the first one when Ben notices his ring that I think had, it was it the Mason logo? It was, it was the Freemasons. The Freemason logo? Yeah. 
Um, so they, even though Ben has broken countless laws, Sadusky still respects him and he loves that he has such a respect for history. So I think when he realizes now that Ben is onto something, he knows better than to stand in his way, but he's like, I'm not going to lose my job over you. Um, so I like that there is this, I will meet you halfway element to their relationship now. Yes. But we're going to jump the shark. We're going to kidnap the president. I love this moment for Riley because it's in his book and he says the line to Ben. Once they realize they they need the book, there's there's Riley's book and then there is the book passed down from president to president. And once they figure out that that's what they need, Riley says to Ben, if it were me, you would have less evidence right now and I would be behind you already. So I love that they flip it where it's like, okay, Ben has to put all of his faith in Riley. And then from there it's, yes, we have to kidnap the president to make this happen and get the book. Yeah. And again, it's a sequel. So let's plus it. But you don't have to plus it. You can just make a natural continuation of the story. I want to ask you, though, what do you think is more egregious, kidnapping the Declaration of Independence or the president? The president. The Declaration doesn't have the Secret Service around it at all times. I mean, let's call it what it is. The president's got hidden snipers within a quarter mile of his body at all times. In theory, what they did... As far-fetched as it was that they stole the Declaration of Independence, you're stealing an exhibit from a museum. As difficult as that may be, I don't believe it's impossible. I think it would have needed to be more of an inside job than it was, though not impossible. Kidnapping the President of the United States. You can't take a selfie with the President of the (laughs) United States, much less kidnap the man at his birthday party. I'm not talking about, though, what's more difficult to do. I'm talking about what do you think is more valuable? The president. It's the president. But there's a vice president. There's not a vice declaration of independence. What they're showing you half the time isn't even the real declaration of independence, though. They have fakes that they put out. The real one, I'm not even sure that the real one is on display all that much, but I, I digress. There are copies of that document so that they don't get destroyed, so that they don't get stolen. The, pre- the president is the president. He is literally, yes, the, the Declaration of Independence is literally what our country is founded upon. The president of the United States, don't fight me, is the most powerful human being on the planet. But think about it. His job, he swears to uphold the Constitution. So e- even... That alone is saying that that constitution is more valuable than the president's life because it's his job to protect it. Fair enough. I just, I do feel like you're doing a lot more. You have to do a lot more to kidnap the president than you do to steal the Declaration of Independence. Oh, well, I'm glad you bring that up, though, because I feel like they just breeze right through that. Yes. Okay. So let's, can we talk, (laughs) I'm going to talk about the scene now, but I'm, I'm glad that you bring that up Yes. because it's totally true at the president's birthday at Mount Vernon. Ben sneaks in. How? I don't know. No, he, his, his dad's fishing. He scuba's in. 
You, you, but you're I, telling me that people know exactly who he is? You're Because the president knew exactly that it was Ben Gates. And yet at the same time, like, nobody blinks an eye that Ben Gates, a well-known person who's now in the media, and they, the movie calls attention to that as well, just happens to be at a party that there's no way he was invited to. I don't know. They know the name, but not the face. But it it's worth it for John Voight in this scene, too, where he's playing this dumb fisherman. Yeah. So Ben sneaks in, and knowing the president's admiration for George Washington, Ben shows him a hand-drawn map of Mount Vernon uh, done by George Washington, showing an under uh, an underground, under undiscovered tunnel. Um, and the president studied architecture in college. So, you know, now you're really tugging at the president's heartstrings. Um, so they go underground together without the Secret Service because the president calls them off gleefully just goes away with Ben where they find this underground tunnel. Uh, Ben traps the president inside where he tells Ben eventually the location of the book and asks him to look at page 48. Seven. Sorry, 47. You're right. Um, okay. I, okay. You, you go ahead. Yeah. Cause you know what I'm going to say. There's a lot leading up to this when, so we we kind of skipped over when Ben announces that he's going to kidnap the president. The three of them, Riley, Abigail, and his father, an outburst. What? You can't. This is crazy. Da, 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 da. And, and again, that's why I pose the question. What do you think is more valuable? Because when it was, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence, Riley launches into, you shouldn't, but here's how we can actually achieve this. After everything that they've done, I don't believe that the three of them would be against Ben in this moment. Maybe his father, but not Abigail. And again, you could have leaned into, it's my job, you can't do this. Right. And I certainly believe that Riley's going to be behind him. So that outburst just felt like they were trying to be funny and it just didn't work out. And then it does nicely set up. They ask, well, how are you going to do it? And he just says, Mount Vernon. So here's where it would have been nice to flesh out a little bit. I totally buy that the Gates family has this map. I don't need an explanation for that. But how Ben knew that this was actually going to work, that the tunnel did in fact exist, that there was a secret passage. Um, it just would have been nice to f- see the how he knows the history of this a little bit more. And I feel like something probably got cut for time setting this idea up and instead I would have also just brought that they knew the president's birthday was at Mount Vernon because hello it's George Washington's home like it just seems like a natural fit where you would host a president's birthday if it's not going to be up at Camp David so there's this montage where they're booking up all the hotels in the area to force Mount Vernon and they never connect the dots of why it was so specific that Ben needed the birthday to be there. I'm thinking in my head the whole time it's, oh, Ben knows that's where his birthday is going to be. But because they steered the ship there, we just needed to know that this was going to work and it was worth the risk. Right. Also, the president of the United States is never just going to blow off all of his dignitaries to go crawl through a slimy, dusty, underground tunnel with a conspiracy theorist. 
as as brilliant as Ben is, and and as he did find the treasure in the first film, the president is never going to do this. I can I can see the president like wanting to like put on his dancing shoes for a while and go listen to Lyle Lovett and do all the other stuff that he was going to do, and maybe he just wants a break from the Secret Service, but. He's never just going to go into an underground tunnel without no. any sort of protection. Or even just an old tunnel that uh, that poses the threat of collapsing on him. Yeah. However, what I do really like is the characterization that they gave our fictitious president. Because he doesn't have a name. He's he, just the yeah, president. Yeah, it's just the president. Um, I like that they made him, you know, just, just Ben has the ability to convince you that there is a treasure and you just become a little boy that wants to go on this adventure. So I love that they did that. Um, I was actually going to ask you that though, what you think about um, because they don't give the president a name. Do you think it was smarter to go with the current president or do you think that they should have just because of the way that they sort of rushed through things, would it have been smarter to pick a former president? No, I think, just to go with an evergreen president, you don't you don't have his name. You could have made up a name and it wouldn't matter. Mm. But he's just the president. He doesn't need to be more than just the president, frankly. <laughs> but I think you had to make him just this evergreen character that's not real. And I'm just realizing now as I'm saying it, though, the only the current president knows where the book is. Right. So they would have changed the spot, theoretically, from where the former president had it. Yeah, even though when they do eventually find it, in the next scene, it's in a spot that looks like it very would have, it, it clearly would have been there forever because it's in a hidden compartment in the president's private library inside the Library of Congress. It seems like it would have been there forever. Right. And that it wouldn't have just moved from place to place. And I guess that's where I'm bumping on this idea of you could have asked a former president. Instead of kidnapping the current one, you would have had to, they could have done a, a whole different scene where they were pursuing a former president, trying to hustle him down. Like, does the book exist and where is it? Right. I mean, look, the president, he could have lied for Ben. This is the other thing. He yeah. Didn't, he, he didn't, because he kidnapped him for a few minutes just to get the location of the book. Then he asks for a favor from Ben. He could have just lied on his behalf because instead he says 200 people just watched you kidnap the president. Your name is already in the media because now everybody thinks that your great-great-grandfather spearheaded the assassination of President Lincoln. So... It's impossible that Ben would have been able to get to the Library of Congress within 20 minutes because that's when he meets Abigail and Riley there. And maybe the president doesn't tell them right away where he went, but you have to imagine that the Secret Service is locking down everything. Yes. And he walks into the Library of Congress in the tuxedo that he's wearing at the party. He's yes. not even in a disguise. I do like that they make mention of it. And there, there's the joke written where he says, I'd love to wear this thing once to a party that I'm actually invited to. It was a funny line. Yeah. Um. Geographically, though, I'm not sure this makes sense. I went to Mount Vernon when I was a kid. Like, we tacked it on to a D.C. trip. Right. So I know it's close, but I don't know about 20 minutes. It's not enough time that the Secret Service would not find you. Right. Especially because when when they tip the FBI off about the president, 
Sadusky immediately knows that this is part of Ben's plan. Right. But the other thing is, it's like, well, then why did you tell him? And why did you confirm the book? You had to know that a man who went after the Declaration of Independence was going to do something like this. Yeah. I wish that there was more of like Sadusky putting on a show because obviously, like I said, he has to know. So it would have been nice for him to go, oh, my God, this has to be Gates at it again. And it also looks a little bit suspicious on his part that he immediately knew it was Gates. Because you're in. You're a co-conspirator now. Right. So I think there should have been a little bit more of a um, putting the pieces together on Sadusky's part. Or at least phoned it in a little bit. At the Library of Congress, they find the book and realize that the Queen was helping the Confederates to divide the United States. And that President Coolidge found the clue and that Rushmore was a cover-up to hide the whereabouts of the City of Gold. Ben sends a photo of the plank to his father so that his mother can translate it. However, Mitch gets to her first and threatens to kill Patrick if she helps him. Don't forget, we have hacked that phone, so he's seeing everything, and Ben and Patrick have no idea that this is how Mitch is on to them. Right. She vaguely translates it to tell them to release the hummingbird at Mount Rushmore. Mitch shows Emily the final clue to the treasure, a letter from Queen Victoria to the Confederates, which he burns to keep its secrets with him so that they can go to Mount Rushmore where they intercept Ben, because now at this point... He is the only person that will ever know the final clue. So by burning this letter, it basically it's a failsafe, right? Like there's no way they could ever find the treasure without Mitch being involved. Um, so at this point, as much as I dislike how they are overusing technology and it's just hackers because, you know, bad guy with money. This scene is where I think Mitch is at his best, and I wish that they would have done more fleshing this character out and had not just solely relied on bad guy. You get it. You're right, but on the other hand, Ben has just kidnapped the president. It's like the worst thing you can do. So anything that Mitch does can't be that bad where it's going to top that. I think they have to make him sort of villain light so that any act that he does is not bigger than what Ben is doing. And speaking of kidnapping the president, I realize that that is why the FBI is after him. However, this is where I bump on it a little bit. I'm not going to say that the whole film falls apart, but because of what Ben did and, and made the discovery of the Templar treasure, it just doesn't make sense that he wouldn't have more people backing his next endeavor. Um, and I mean, they have tried to set up that idea of his credibility being questioned just by virtue of Mitch being involved. And I guess because the act of kidnapping the president is so egregious it negates any good that he did with his other discovery but and, and I mean that's where you don't even have a film if you are going to go that route where his next hunt is legal but like I, I guess I'm looking too much at the reality of it where if if he made this discovery he would have people like Ian or the government 
backing his next project. Yeah, I, I think that, but let's let's not even look at it from a perspective of having somebody financially back you. Because you've made this discovery, you have regained your credibility and you've saved your family's name. So you would think that if he goes to the U.S. government and says, hey, I'm finding these clues, this is what I need, he wouldn't have to go to such lengths such as kidnapping the president of the United States because his, his credibility should have been rehabilitated by now. That's exactly what I was getting at. I mean, maybe that doesn't translate to overseas, so you still have to break into Buckingham Palace, but I feel like to examine the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office, it just should have been like, hi, Ben Gates, can I take a look at it? And, and somebody would be like, well, why do you want to see it? Or even just asking Sadusky to get him in. I feel like he would have carte blanche to do that. And I guess that's where, again, we've said kidnapping the president is pretty far-fetched, but the president is the only one who knows about this book. So uh, they, they do sort of cover their tracks in that regard. But it's just frustrating to see this chase through the Library of Congress when and, and all this sneaking around when to me at the very least Abigail should go or or Riley should be allowed in for his research because he was such an integral part of finding the Templar treasure and certainly Ben should be able to waltz in there and see whatever he wants yeah let's talk about the Library of Congress scene Um, I mentioned earlier that the book seems like it would have been hidden there forever yes so I think that as cool as it is that they find it and that the code that unhinges the lock seems like the code that would have been on the spine of the book. It, I just think it doesn't work because it feels like it should have always been there. Not that that particular president just happened to stash it there. Exactly. If there wasn't a compartment, I would have bought, okay, he hid it right in plain sight. Smart. But... um. That was the only thing, yeah. It's like you said, they just set it up for the sake of having this combination lock. And we've already seen combinations with the Resolute Desk. So, yeah, they could have done something a little bit different here. I also don't think they're going to put the presidential seal on the door that is locked to keep anybody but the president out. I feel like they would do a better job of trying to hide the fact that that is the president's private library. And you would think there would have to be more like biometrics or facial scans or something to get in rather than a four digit punch code because the door is four digits. Yeah, maybe a camera. Yeah, maybe a camera somewhere. (laughs) True. (laughs) It it's it seems like it was too easy to get there. Yeah, we have to break in. So we're just going to walk through this door that this elderly gentleman with a cart of books happened to walk through and we're going to sneak up a staircase and then find the door with the presidential seal. It it was just too easy. I mean, I will give them credit, though, because we've already had a scene in the White House. So I, I wouldn't have wanted them to go back there. I feel like it would have been too much of the same thing. Can we also point out the fact that at this point, Ben has been accused of kidnapping the president of the United States. Every government agency on the planet is after him. And yet somehow, some way, those same 
police and government agents don't try to stop Abigail or Riley when they look at their identification, don't you think that they would have been people of interest? Seriously, they really dumbed down the Secret Service in this one from from the tunnels in Mount Vernon to here. Well, I don't know if this was Secret Service at the Library of Congress. It doesn't matter, though. You put out an all points bulletin that the president's been kidnapped. The accuser and all of the people of interest would have been mentioned, you would think. Hey, be on the lookout for them, because if you find them, you probably find him. Or just like in the first one. They they went to Patrick's house to find out Ben's whereabouts. You would think they're going straight to Patrick and Emily and Abigail and Riley to find out when was the last time that they saw him. Yeah, the the scene does kind of fall flat. As fun as it is that they find the book, I, I do think that it falls flat. What I will say, there's a very strong end to the scene. I like that Abigail is the one to drive the car out and they give her a little bit more agency here. Yeah. All right, so out uh, out at Mount Rushmore, they use water bottles to wet the stones on the mountain and reveal the symbol of the eagle, where Ben finds a latch that opens a secret passageway underneath Mount Rushmore. They become trapped inside and separated when traps meant to deter treasure hunters begin to go off. Patrick and Emily try to find their way out, while Ben, Riley, Abigail, and Mitch are finding their own ways out. Eventually, they all reunite and avoid more traps and floodwaters to reveal the city of gold. I want to talk about the top of this scene. I love the Mount Rushmore tie-in. I don't think that there was a better location that you could have picked as far as hiding something in plain sight, Mount Rushmore being a cover-up. And you needed a big space, obviously, for this whole structure. Uh, So I think that was really smart. Uh, I also like how they got everyone there because in the first one, it was that convoluted, who has the upper hand? Abigail and Riley are coming from one place. They're trying to save Ben, who's in the clutches of the FBI. And they use Ian as a tool to get everybody to one spot. Here, they get both parties to Mount Rushmore. Uh, and they are holding Emily this time as collateral because, as you said, Mitch you know, went for, to her for the translation. But he keeps her with him. Um, what I don't like about this scene is that when... Patrick also goes to Emily for the translation. Obviously, Mitch tells her to lie to him, but she speaks in code. And you know this because she grabs his hand and she, up to this point, has not been able to be in the same room as him without an argument. Right. So you know it's a signal to him and probably to Ben to to get them there. Um, but then as soon as they see, as soon as she sees Ben at Mount Rushmore, she's like, oh, you so smart you figured out my clue Mm -hmm. like first of all that's what ben does second of all you haven't clued the audience in as to why this is significant and i don't need helen mirren spelling it out for me that ben figured it out it it just it, it is the weakest point of dialogue across both films and it's really disappointing that you burn that on talent like helen mirren yeah, unfortunately, I think that a lot of what happens in this scene just kind of fails. And you're at the crescendo of the film, right? Like, mm. the eagle is fun. The fact that they just, ha- you know, six water bottles and they just happen to find this 
very small clue by happenstance is pretty amazing. I mean, even though we don't see them acquire the water bottles, I will buy that they have them because you have to hike up to Mount Rushmore. That's fine. But they also give Abigail some really weak dialogue, too, because when she finds the eagle, wouldn't she know better than to scream out, hey, I found it? Wouldn't she have signaled to Ben, like, I got it, but don't let Mitch see? Mitch is going to kill them. It doesn't matter. I don't know that it was ever really going to kill them. Um... He's not as unhinged as Ian, but we'll we'll get to that. So, like, it's all well and good. The latch, it's fun. The, Cage clearly had fun with it. Yeah. The, the counterweight, all right, that's cool. But the problem is everything that happens after this point. I think that having all of these booby traps all over the place and trap doors and counterweights... It loses the charm and the simplicity of the original film, which was just that you were hunting clues. Now, you feel like you're trying to do more than they did in Indiana Jones. Like, even Indiana Jones never went to these levels, and it just seemed like you were trying to up everything. I completely agree, but at the same time, that teeter-totter set is just so cool. The idea of having to balance the weight and then realize that they need to tip that scale to get out of there. Um, it's a really cool scene. Um, I also like the idea that one of them's got to stay behind. It is a funny moment for Riley. Um, but as it turns out, no one's getting left behind because the thing starts to collapse. What I like here is that it it I had said something similar last week that uh, because Ian was Ben's partner, they fall into step very easily. Even though Ian could kill them at any moment, they're still working together to get to the treasure room. And they do that here with Mitch too, but they take it one step further to show that he's not a monster because he's being helpful. He, When Riley falls at one point, he picks him up. He asks if he's okay. Um, he helps them all over the ledge because he's the first one up the ladder. Where Ian had stopped them every step along the way, Mitch is really in this with him. And he even issues an apology to Ben, uh, which I don't think was necessary because he said, I'm, I'm sorry to go about it this way, but I didn't uh, I didn't know how else to involve you. That that kind of falls apart for me because I think all you had to do was ask and say, oh, there might be another treasure map. I have the same exact note. Um. Yeah, we didn't need an apology from the villain here, but I think the point that I'm trying to make is that I think the idea of this was to make us more sympathetic to Mitch's sacrifice because Ian gets away. The worst thing that happens is that Sadusky catches up with him because someone has to go to jail. Uh, and here, Mitch ends up giving his life for the cause. Right. I mean, we'll get to that in a minute. Yes. Um. But you're right. But here's the thing, though. My exact note was we didn't need to smear Gates to get Gates. If you yes. would have come to Gates and said, hey, nice presentation. By the way, I have the missing diary page. I think it leads to the city of gold. Ben's going to say, oh, man. And they're going to go. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, they're not they're not going to fight each other on this. Like, he's going to go. Um, the other problem is that this scene falls victim to everything that I can't stand about The Walking Dead, which... 
I completely gave up on. I don't watch it anymore because we spend too much time in separate places. They spend too much time separated, this group, inside of Mount Rushmore. It, they do it to... This movie could have easily been 10 to 15 minutes shorter if they didn't drag certain things out. Oh, and see, I disagree because I love that they gave ben, uh, Patrick and Emily that subplot to mend their relationship. And I also think, I hate to say this, they are older actors. They're not going to be able to handle the physical as much as everyone else. So... They still gave them an adventure of their own. They still gave them a stunt. Um, but they didn't have them, you know, sopping through water this entire time. I mean, they do eventually. Eventually, everybody's going in the pool. Right. But um, I like that they had their own little journey to get through. Yeah, I guess. I want to talk about the city of gold set. Um, bec- what set? Well, no, that's exactly the point that I was going to make. When we were watching it, you and I both groaned when they do the first wide sweeping shot of of this room. And I thought it was CGI. But I don't believe that it is because they are standing on that platform multiple times where there's the... um, I, I don't know that table that where Emily sees the inscription and she thinks it can unlock the translation. Uh, they stand on it in th- the first time that they get in that space. And then they go back again when, you know, she's got her team and they're cataloging everything. Riley is sitting up on uh, one of the staircases. I think it's a, a hybrid. I don't think that they built this entire room. Um, but I just think it's a weird angle and they don't they don't get a great shot of it on the first reveal and it looks like CGI. But I, I think for the most part, it's a practical set. And the other thing is they are going to flood this room. So it has to be practical. I think I think your close ups are practical. I think all of your wides are CGI because it stood out as looking lousy. And I said last week when we reviewed the first film, if they did it now, this entire thing would be CGI. And here we are only, what, three years later, four years later, and horrific Disney CGI that for whatever reason the moving-going audience has just accepted and, they've, and, and they're, they're gleefully happy to see it. And I don't understand why. No, you absolutely called it. And I will give you that because this is supposed to be the city of gold. I think it's arguably a bigger discovery than the Templar treasure, even though that has so many historical artifacts. Um, To me, that set is still more impressive. And this is where you should have upped the ante and, and this should have been the better set, but it's not. As far as the escape, though, with the flooding, I think it has the Templar treasure beat. That's yeah. pretty cool. All I right. thought this was a good idea. Yeah, let's talk about, let's get to the end of the movie here. As the ancient walls begin to give out, the floodwaters begin to take over the city, so they look for a drain to escape. They find a door to an escape tunnel. However, it closes on its own, so one of them will need to stay behind 
to keep the door open. Ben volunteers to stay behind. However, Mitch ends up being the one to stay behind in exchange for being credited with finding the treasure. Upon their escape, Ben turns himself into Sadusky. However, the president pardons Ben and clears Thomas Gates's name. Ben also tells the president that he can help him with what he found on page 47. So here's the thing with it with this escape and with the floodwaters. Yes, I think that this escape is more daring and more thrilling than what they need to do to get out of uh the treasure room in the first National Treasure film, especially because you've eliminated your villain by sending him after a false clue at that point. Correct. Um so it is more thrilling. However, Mitch doesn't sacrifice himself until he realizes that it's too late. It's always going to be Ben, but between the floodwaters coming down and things crashing around in the room, literally the two of them inexplicably or inexplicably get flipped. Like, Mitch is basically out of that room. And somehow he and Ben just completely get flipped around. Yeah, I hate to say it, because these films are otherwise so well done. I mean, we called out that one production flub last week where you see Abigail and Riley in the background of a shot that they shouldn't be. Um, But here, I don't think that this is an error. I just think that they didn't light this space well enough. I mean, I I understand it's a cave. It's got to be dark, but it, to me, it's just not well lit. I have, thought that every single time that I watch it. Um, Even the first time I saw it, it was very difficult to tell what's going on, especially once Ben gets back to the door. Because then Riley says he's going back to get him and you don't know who's on which side. Um, You do see Ben slip because the door doesn't just open. I think it's on sort of a pulley system and that's why one person needs to stay and you can't just wedge something under the door. You have to be in the dial that holds it open, you see Ben slip because everything is collapsing from there. But you're right. It doesn't make sense that Mitch is the one who goes back to, you know, they've already decided Ben is going to stay. And I mean, obviously they're not going to kill him off, but it just didn't make sense. You're right that he was at the door and then he went back to sacrifice himself. It also doesn't make sense that as soon as, the door shuts and they're sitting in the escape tunnel. Remember, it was, we can't wedge the door open because then the tunnel will flood and everybody in there will be killed as well. And that's not what happens because as soon as the door shuts, we see light and there's the escape to the outside world. So those waters were already running out there. So it wouldn't have mattered if that door was wedged open or not. Not to mention Ben wedges himself in the door. Right, that's how he gets stuck there to begin with. Yeah. Th- this he should is... have lost his legs. Yes. This is where it collapses a little bit. And the other thing is, I feel like they could have gotten Mitch out. Um, had Mitch just gone back into the City of Gold, because you know, this was just right underneath that big platform. If he had gotten to higher ground... I think that the rest of them would have had enough time to escape and maybe not 
pump the room out, but at least send a rescue mission in or a team in to get Mitch because he probably theoretically could have gone out the way that Emily and Patrick came in. Right. Yeah, it there's just a lot that it it leaves a lot to be desired at the end of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I didn't need a happy ending that much where he survives and I also like the character moment for him because all he wants is his family's name cleared and he wants credit for the discovery and that's enough for him, but I I still think you could have got him out. My other bigger issue is that we never find out anything about page 47. And I do believe that that was the way to leave the door open for the third sequel, where now you would have had the government support in trying to find whatever this thing is. So I'm still hoping we get that film and they don't bury it now that they're passing the baton to the Disney Plus series. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're going to find out soon enough when the series drops this week if they're talking about what was found on page 47. Um, Okay, final thoughts on National Treasure Book of Secrets. I mean, I guess let me lead off with this question to you. After having seen this, without having seen the new television series... Do you still want a third film? Do you want a third film because you want a third film, or do you want a third film because you want to see them tie up page 47 is my question. That's a fair question. To answer that, I think I am sort of going to talk through my final thoughts on this, uh, which is that the first film is infinitely better than this one. I mean, we gave it a near perfect. Um, This is certainly not a bad sequel, they just didn't outdo themselves from the first film. So that being said, I think it can sort of all only go downhill from here. I don't think that a third one is going to be better than the first two, although maybe because they really took their time here, maybe they can make it better. That is my hope. But at this point, I am hoping for a sequel, a a third film in the trilogy more so for the answer to page 47 than I am to see another retread. Okay, that makes sense. So, you know what? To me, this movie is just okay. Um, The first one, I did give it perfect marks. I don't think that sequels necessarily need to exceed their predecessors. Um, I think that if you make a sequel that's on equal measure then you've made a successful sequel. Yes, I, think, I agree. I think the obsession with we have to plus it, we have to plus it, we have to plus it, this, this is where that ideology fails. Movies like this are where that ideology fails. So the movie's fine. It's not the worst sequel we have reviewed on this program by any stretch of the imagination. Is it good? It's okay. Am I going to watch it anytime soon? Probably not. Does it have me excited for a third film? Not necessarily. Um, Do I want a third film? I'd be interested in it because I happen to like these kind of stories and this style of filmmaking. However, I know that I am going to be let down with CGI. 
Yes. I'm going to be at this point. It's going to be bad CGI. It's going to be something that is going to be nothing but computer hacking and satellite this and but but that and so you've lost the simplicity of these treasure hunts. So it's it's not anything that I think I'm gonna love. So I, I'm I'm willing to sit through it. But I will tell you I'm less excited about the idea of it now than I was a few years ago. But I'm that's why I'm cautiously optimistic. Maybe after watching the television series, if they go back to basics, perhaps it'll get me more excited for the idea of a third National Treasure film. And perhaps this is the gateway to getting us there. But we want to know what you have to say about National Treasure Book of Secrets. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. When we were planning our first family trip to Disney World, uh, Jackie was the first person that we thought of. Jackie helped us with every step of the planning. She helped us pick the right time of year to visit to make sure we don't have big lines. And she helped us pick the right hotel for our itinerary and our budget. She also gave us uh, great recommendations when it came to scheduling our parks, our dining reservations, and the attractions. These days, it feels like there's a lot that goes into planning a Disney trip, and there's a lot that we just didn't know about Disney World, and we're just so thankful for Jackie's advice in making it all a little bit easier. Yeah, when we got to the property, we, we realized we wanted to add on another park day, so we texted Jackie early in the morning, and she got back to us right away, and that really helped us make it happen. We had some amazing meals and drinks. We went to Cinderella's Royal Table. We went to Oga's Cantina. We rode Rise of the Resistance without waiting on a long line. And on Jackie's recommendation, we saw the Epcot fireworks from the Skyliner. This was an unforgettable family trip to Disney World, and Jackie made it happen. Thank you, Jackie. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. You know, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONORAIL10 at checkout. Don't forget that. To see everything that Kelly has to offer, all of her services and all of her work, it is online at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. Okay, so news this week. Tefiti has been installed at Epcot Center. And when you saw the photograph online, you were uh, taken aback by the scale of Tefiti, I said I don't think she could possibly be this large. It has to be an angle. But it was a little startling to see what appeared to be a very large structure sitting in front of Spaceship Earth. Yes. I mean, I figured that they were playing with the camera angles, but then I don't know. There is so much emphasis on Moana. They've added Moana everywhere. I thought, what if this is going to be like the next Epcot weenie? I got very nervous. Uh, and then we ended up in Epcot last night. We went to see the Candlelight Processional uh, with Josh Gad, which we are going to talk about in depth uh, in our next Dockside chat, which is coming up later this week. Um, so I got to see it for myself. In fact, we didn't, didn't see, see it, it at all. Um 
it it's absolutely the angles you can't even see it over the construction walls so it's definitely not the monstrosity i thought it was going to be yeah and you can see some of the water features peeking out from above those construction walls but this you can't see so if you were concerned that it was going to be you know the sorcerer hat in front of the chinese theater it is certainly not that um but we want to know if you are excited about them furthering the development of this Moana attraction at Epcot. We're not. But we want to know maybe you are. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. We just gave you the email address and the social media. We are also on TikTok at Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. And for links for everything related to the show, it's online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.